And also, just before moving on, and I'm going to pray here before I teach in just a second, but bringing up the past, you know, we want to be doers of the Word, not hearers only. And I'm just thinking of things like, are we worshiping in our work? Are we worshiping in obedience besides here and on the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table? Are we worshiping? Is that a lifestyle for us? That's something we talked about oh, over the last couple of months. And then also, uh, have we drawn some lines in the sand? Have we thought about those, those demands that we may face from Caesar in upcoming months or years in which we'd say, uh, that belongs to God, not to Caesar. And on, uh, at these lines, at these points of demarcation, I must draw the line and say, uh, I, I cannot, I may not do that. That's something to be prayerfully considering for us as uh, politics and the landscape around us shifts here in the coming days and years. So with all of that out of the way, let's, let's pray. Father, I'm, uh, I'm so glad to belong to you, so glad to know you, so glad Bob Schneider knows you too, Father, and I, I thank you that I know his soul's good with you and ready to go. I do pray for the McFall family, for Bob's sons, for his grandchildren who are here. Uh, Father, I pray that there's a no regrets when Bob slips these earthly bonds, and I assume that will be soon. Pray, Lord, things that needed to be said are said. Uh, forgiveness given or needed, Lord, is, is taken care of. Just ask that you'd be with their family and with Bob. And Father, I thank you for a guy who has lived his life uh, waiting to see you face to face. And I pray that we can can have at least some of that same attitude and mentality, uh, just as the song that introduced the teaching time here talked about that day that we see you face to face, either, Lord, through the doorway of death or because, Lord Jesus, you've come back and called us to yourself. But, Lord, in either event, help us to live as Bob has, looking forward to see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you know I grew up in a big family. It would rival any of the big families in this church. Eleven kids. I had four other brothers. And also, we happened to live in a neighborhood at a great time because the families around us, they had boys our age too. And so you know what this means. You always have someone to play with on one hand. But then, Ryan, it also means that you always have someone to fight with, right? So you're fighting one, one moment and, and playing the other. But... You know how that goes, that if you're fighting with your brother, you're ready to kill him in the moment, right? But if someone else picks on him, what happens? Sudden solidarity, right? My brother, my friend, you know, that's mine. I can beat him, you know, to a pulp, but, but nobody else. But we have those familial bonds that we want to be protective of what God has uniquely given us, friends or family. One of the topics in between teaching series that I've wanted to mention for quite some time simply has to do with the church, the church of Jesus Christ. And what we'll look at this morning is that Jesus loves the church, and that means we should too. But along these lines, the church, Jesus' presence on the earth, and that, that entity that he purchased with his blood is really under attack from a number of different angles, but I'm thinking broadly both from within those circles that profess Christ as Lord in some way or another, but, but also from without. 
So if you think of sort of semi from within, we live in a day in which professing Christians minimize the reality of God's Word. They don't claim Christ as Lord. He's not someone that they must follow. Maybe we respect Him as a certain kind of teacher, but that doesn't put any onus on us to actually do what He says. From within the church, from within the the family bonds, largely the church is in trouble. But also from without. You know, to the world around us, the church is an anachronism or a throwback, right? Maybe something that was helpful for people in a day gone by, but not today. Disrespected and really, probably for me, the biggest, the most damning charge, if you will, sort of against the church perhaps, is that we appear irrelevant in the time and the place we live. And at one level, the church should really be seen as a a dangerous thing, for sure. Do you remember in Paul's day, in a powerful Roman world, and a culture that that didn't think Judaism or some offshoot of Judaism was a good thing to follow. You know, the Romans said Paul and the Gospel and the church were these messages and entities that had turned that world upside down. But for the church today in our culture, I'm afraid that we've become irrelevant, at least significantly so, to the larger culture around us. Now, if we said, look, some entity a university, a school, some other civic group, if we said they'd seen their heyday and things had sort of wound down, they're not what they used to be, that group's not what it used to be, we might say that's fine. You know, that's okay. You know, you, something comes, it endures for a season, then it's gone, that's fine. But when it has to do with the church, that, that simply won't do, it won't wash for this one very specific reason. Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, loves the church. That requires something different of us and from us, and it requires a different attitude, I think, than many of us entertain oftentimes. Christ loves the church, and that makes all the difference. We're going to start in Ephesians 5. This is a passage that's familiar to most, both related to Christ and related to marriage. If you remember, this passage comes as Paul's developing what life looks like for a spiritual Christian. For someone walking in the Spirit, this is what life looks like. And Paul goes on to expound on a number of different relationships. He starts with the relationship of wives and husband. When we read through this, though, I don't want you to think about wives and husband. I want you to think about Christ and the church. Starting at verse 22, Paul wrote, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her this would be he might make her holy having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish by the way that's one of our calls as christians we won't go into this this morning but because we belong to christ because we're members of the church part of god's will for us is work in us It's to make us holy. We should become more and more like the spotless version of ourselves we'll be in the future. 
So just to point that out, we won't be able to cover that this morning. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands, as Christ loved His church in the sanctifying, cleansing, perfecting way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, quoting Genesis here, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, Paul's talking about these relationships. And when I walk in the Spirit in these relationships, husband and wife, parent and child, master and slave, this is what they look like. Now, when he's talking about husbands and wives, it elicits this theological depth from Paul where he doesn't just talk about those relationships that he started to, but he says, now I'm talking about Christ and the church. This passage has lots that we could talk about. We're not going to cover many or most bases. I just want to focus on the fact that Jesus loves the church and what the implications for that are. So, Verse 25 there again, Christ loved, past tense the church, gave Himself up for her. Verse 29, Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church, present tense. That's what He's doing right now. So at verse 25 when He says, Christ loved the church, He gave Himself up for her. And that means Jesus in His death. Jesus gave Himself in death for the church. Gave himself up for the church. You know, talk is cheap. And when we say things, that may or may not carry any weight. It really gets down to what do we do? You know, when James is talking about faith, he says, you know, I'll show you my faith by what I do. You know, the acid test, not our words, but what we actually do. So Jesus' kind of love for the church meant he did something. He died for the church. He put His life down for the church. That's how much He loved us, loved the church. You know, if we're going to make a purchase or if we're looking at something that we consider important, we might want to get for ourselves or our family or someone else, what's the question we always ask? How much does it cost? What does it cost? So I've got to base how I proceed on whether or not I can pay the price or if I want to pay the price. So if I'm looking at an education for my children, I might say, how much will that education cost us? Or health care decisions or trinkets. How much does it cost and do I want to pay that price or not? Can I and do I want to? When Paul says that Jesus loved the church, he says he gave himself up for the church, for us. So, when Jesus says the church would require the payment of my life, He says that's okay. I'm willing to pay that. I love the church. I love you, Jesus says. He loves me and you and the church. He loves us so much, He says, that the price tag of death is not too high to pay. Now, You know, we say as Christians so often, Jesus died, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus died for my sins. It sort of becomes so rote that we forget what did that really look like for Jesus? What did that look like for the Son and for the Father? So, just developing that a little bit. 
Our redemption meant that the morally, holy, spotless one, Jesus, God who simply cannot even look on sin, it is so anathema to who he is and what he is, but then he says, I will become sin for them, for the church, to win the church. I'll become what I can't even look at. What I can't even associate with, I will become for them on the cross. If you think of this too, when Jesus dies on the cross in that process, you know when He cries out from the Old Testament, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? You know, I would argue that there's never been any more pitiful words uttered on the earth than those words from the cross. Because that's God the Son who's been cut off from God the Father. So remember, the eternal God always in fellowship, the Trinity with each other. You know, thinking the same thoughts, feeling the same things, blessing each other, totally complementary. And on the cross, when Jesus becomes sin, the Father cuts, if you will, that relationship, that loving bond. So when Jesus says, why have you forsaken me from the cross? That eternal fellowship the Son and the Father had always known and enjoyed, it's severed. There's an element of the cross. You know, if you watch the movies or if you read the Passion accounts in the Gospels, or the movie I'm thinking of, The Passion of the Christ, you sort of get a sense physically of how grueling and gruesome and horrific uh, scourging and beating and crucifixion would be for a person physically, don't we? But Jesus wasn't the only person ever crucified, right? This treatment He got from the Romans, that wasn't unique to Jesus. Other people had been scourged. Other people had been mocked and beaten and crucified. That was not unique. But I would still argue that Jesus' death, His suffering on the cross was suffering like no other human being has ever known. Not just because of the physical element, but because of the emotional and the spiritual. So you've got the Son of God, God the Son on earth, who can experience everything in degrees of which you and I cannot even imagine. So that spiritually and emotionally, as He becomes sin for us, As he's cut off from the Father, Jesus experiences emotion and spiritual realities that I don't think we'll ever get to. I think that will remain a bit of a mystery. What did that actually feel like for the Son of God to be cut off from the Father? I don't think we can get there. When we say Jesus laid his life down for the church, we need to think about what did that really look like? What did that cost really feel like? Because if we don't have some adequate comprehension of that to say Jesus paid for us, to say He laid His life down for us, it doesn't put on us the kind of weight and the kind of responsibility I think that we should have to say that's what our redemption costs. That's how much Jesus loves the church. If we don't get the cost, then we don't get the value of the love. We don't know what that looked like for Him, what that felt like for Him. What that experience was like for him, I don't think we get how much he really loves us, how much he loves the church. Jesus' love, we use terms like radical. You know, we've used radical so much, it's not radical anymore. But Jesus' love for us was absolutely radical, absolutely eternal, total commitment, 
more costly, by the way, than any decision ever made in the, in the universe. Jesus' decision to die for the church, the most costly purchase, if you will, ever in the universe. Couldn't be higher because it cost God his life. Couldn't be higher. This was so the fullness of the omnipotent God could be poured out on us in his benevolence and his goodness. Not only now, because we get a taste of this now, right? Connected to Christ through faith, we have the Spirit, the first fruits, if you will. We get some sense of peace and joy and what life could be like. But then it goes on through the endless ages to come. And to get us that, God the Son lays down his life for us. So when we say Jesus loves the church or Jesus laid down his life for us, this is really weighty, weighty stuff that we've got to develop a little bit in our mind if we're to have any right grasp of what that means and therefore how it should affect us. It's easy to say Jesus loved the church. It's another to consider what that really looks like. Paul, in fact, calls it a profound mystery. Christ loved the church. Loves the church today. In fact, he says today, present tense, he's nourishing and cherishing the church. Jesus loves the church. We've got to get a hold of that. Now, Jesus did not love and did not lay his life down for lots of other things. So, for instance... Uh, I want to say nations here. Jesus didn't love and die for nations. I'm thinking the United States or Great Britain or France. Israel has a unique place in God's economy in the past. I believe Israel still holds a unique place in God's economy in the future. So we might say, okay, well, Jesus' death uniquely ties to Israel as a nation, and I'll grant that. But that aside, as a caveat, Jesus didn't love and die for nations, not, not even ours no matter how nationalistic we are, no matter what great patriots we are, in any country in which we live or reside as Christians, Jesus didn't love and die for nations. Jesus didn't love and die for schools, for your home school, for your uh, parochial school like I grew up in, or for your Christian school, or for your universities or your seminaries. Jesus didn't, didn't love and didn't die for our educational establishments. Though we, we appreciate them. Didn't die for them. This one is a stretch, I know, but did you know Jesus didn't love and die for sports teams? I'm serious. I had to think about this one for a while. Because you know, that was, that was hard for me. Jesus didn't love and die for sports teams. So you know how this plays out. So if you look at the enthusiasm Christians spend on professional or collegiate especially, not to mention elementary or high school, the emotion Christians spend on sports is, is almost unfathomable, isn't it? And you know, much as we might enjoy sports in one venue or another, Jesus didn't die for sports teams or sports. That's crazy. That, I really had to wrap my, my mind around that. And I had to make sure that I was reading the right Bible when I saw that. Uh, children's sports. You know, think of this one too. Uh, you know, as often as Christian parents skip out the meeting in the church on Sunday morning for Little League soccer and baseball, I know no one here would ever do that, by the way. I, I, I know that's another church, it's another audience for another time. But, you know, they, their kids might think that Jesus loved and died for Little League. You know, 
but they'd be wrong, wouldn't they? Yeah, because he didn't, right? So Jesus loved, Jesus died for the church, not all these other entities, not all these other options. And guys, I say that for, I'm, I'm kidding, you see my tongue in the side of my cheek, uh, but this would be the point for me. If we see that we have this over-the-top enthusiasm, emotional commitment for things like sports or schools or other options, that, that is over-the-top compared to our emotion and enthusiasm for Christ's church, this would be easy for me to say, maybe we re- need, need to reassess our priorities. If I don't bring the same kind of emotion to what Christ loves, the church, that I do to a sports activities, maybe my affections are misdirected a little. Perhaps. Maybe. Maybe that's for another church too. You guys, you're not, I, I, I see very few grins here, guys. I mean, it's like, are we on the same page or, or we're not? It's just me. Okay, so if I find that my affections are over the top, that I'm, I'm the fan of all fans, but I don't bring that kind of intensity to the church, I would tell you I think we need to reassess what we're getting our affections wrapped up in. Where our heart is and where our mind is. Is, is, uh, is the NFL my version of church on Sundays? Or, or the NBA? Or should I say this even, KU basketball? Is that below the belt? Is KU basketball my religion? Or in another season, forget KU altogether, right? K-State football? You know, are those... Did Jesus love and die for K-State? You know, why they, he actually didn't, did he? Or for the Jayhawks? For a Jayhawk, no? National title, no? You know, in the big scheme of things, where will all that be at the end of the day? Won't even be able to remember it, will we? Part of something that happened a long, long time ago. All of which is to say, if we love what Jesus loves, this sounds self-serving, we'll love the church. We'll love that entity to which we belong. And those that we sit around on Sunday morning with belong also. So just to say on a reality check, if you find yourself wildly enthusiastic about anything else but not about the church, I think we need to repent. We need to change our thinking. We need to reorient our affections. And by the way, I realize I come across hard sometimes. My girls and my wife have told me this, and I have to back up slightly. I have nothing against sports. I have nothing against all kinds of stuff. It's how we use it. It's where does it go. It's where is our heart at in relationship to those little things versus the most important things. So I'm not telling you not to participate in sports or go to KU Basketball or K-State football? Where do they stack up in the big picture? What's got our heart? Where is our mind at ultimately? That leads me to the point, Jesus loves the church and that means we should too. If, If Jesus loves the church, then I should love the church. Do you guys ever pray this prayer like I do? Lord, help me to love what You love. Right? Help me to love what you love. Well, see, Paul's really clear on that. If I love what Jesus loves, I, I love the church. 
I love other Christians. I love them because Jesus does. I love the church because Jesus loves the church. So if I pray that prayer, the top of the list should be, I love the church because Jesus loves the church. So I do too. Since biblical love is to act on behalf of the good of the other, if we say we love the church, but you can't pinpoint what that looks like, what that costs you in your life, I tell you, you probably don't love the church. You probably don't love what Jesus loves. Let me tell you some of the ways, these would be some of the hallmarks or the markers I can think of related to, what does that look like if I do love the church, if love is an action word? And I do love in action, in deed, in truth. What does that look like? The first thing on my list is evangelism. How does Jesus build his church? How does Jesus' church grow? It grows through the proclamation of the gospel. People become members of Christ's church when they hear the gospel. One of the things our home group does just for our accountability is to ask each other and to pray about opportunities to talk to others about Christ during the week. Because it's important. If Jesus loves the church and the church is built through evangelism, pretty good chance that I should be participating in evangelism. I should be looking and praying for opportunities to share the gospel with others who don't know Christ yet. Because that's how Jesus builds His church, the entity that He loves. It's through evangelism through the proclamation of the gospel. Or inviting people to church where if you know you're in a church where they're going to hear the gospel, that's a good thing too. But we should be thinking intentionally about evangelism and sharing Christ with others who don't yet know Him because that's how He builds His church, the proclamation of the gospel. If we love Jesus, we'll participate in the local church. We'll participate in the local church. This, this gets down to brass tacks, by the way. That's why my brother over here, I assume, is laughing. Uh, we'll participate in the local church. You know, again, probably no one here ever thought this, do you know that I'm better than most other Christians? I am. So it's really hard for me to find a good church. You know, it's hard for me to find a church that's good enough for me to belong to. You know, finding a, a worthy church, a, a place for me, it's tough. Julie, I've got to do my homework. I look around, weigh the options. You know, maybe, maybe I could get into a bidding war for the place that'd be good enough for me to grace with my presence. You know, maybe such a place exists. You know, uh, Christians, guys, the, the, the church culture that we live in today is on one level, it's absolutely ridiculous. Do you know Christians who are called to the humility of Jesus Christ, the highest one who took on the lowliest place? We are by and large a very proud lot. Presumptuous, assuming, we are. I mean, just talk, talk to each other, talk amongst ourselves, you'll see. We are. So, I couldn't tell you how many Christians I've known over the years, I go from one church to another. Go from one church to another. Because because I haven't found you know, one that's adequate, that's up to my standards yet. Or I just don't plug in at all. Because they don't do one thing or another right, you know? But you know, on the big scale of things, if I don't plug into a, a local church, I don't love what Jesus loves. You know, if you don't show up 
I just argue, you don't love Jesus' church. You know, showing up would be the basic, wouldn't you think? If you don't show up, how are you part of what He's doing? How do you love what He loves if you're not participating? If you're not showing up? I'm talking Sunday morning, I'm talking home groups, I'm talking women's Bible studies. We're supposed to be plugged in with each other. We're physical beings, that means we've got to occupy the same space-time continuum with each other, or it doesn't amount to much. We've got to show up if we love the local church, if we love what Jesus loves. If we're in a local church and we're showing up, that's a good thing. We should also be serving. Jesus, the greatest, came to serve. And the way we show love to each other is we serve too. I would tell you, whether Lion and Lamb is your church home or some other place, uh, one, in all seriousness, if, if you didn't know where your church home is and you're still looking, you've got to pray, Lord, where do you want me? And there need to be some parameters there on doctrine and practice, and I'm not minimizing any of that. But when you find that, then plug in. Plug in. And when you plug in, when you're showing up, serve. Find a place to serve. Service is one of the primary ways by which we demonstrate, communicate love to others. They're so important, Jesus' church is so important, that I actually give myself to serve in it. That could be the nursery, Sunday school, that could be meals, you know, the volunteer stuff. There's always things that need to be done. You know, there's always more work than there are servers, servants. There's always things that need to be done. If we love Christ's church, we need to invest ourselves in serving. Related to my first or second or third tongue-in-cheek point, sorry about local church and which one's good enough for me, uh, fellowship, you know, there's a saying that uh, goes like this, I love the church, it's Christians I can't stand. I get that, you know, that's, that's close to home for me. I love the church. Or you've heard this too, Jesus is okay. You know, it's Christians, it's His followers that I have a hard time with. I get that. And I understand it because in the church, you'll find both the best examples of redeemed humanity and the worst. And the church is not sin-free. We're not hypocrite-free. I mean, you name it, we, we've got it. There's a sin, we do it. You know, we, we sin, sorry. We sin, Christians sin oftentimes with the best of them. So, I get that. I understand that. But I can't allow that rationale to keep me from loving what Jesus still today cherishes. Jesus cherishes the day, the church, present tense, today, right now. Bad as we are, faulty as we are, sinful as we are, He still cherishes the church today. And so should we. That means we need to hang out with each other. 1 John 4.20 says, if a person says, I love God, but I don't love my brother, John says, well, listen, if you don't love the brother that you see in front of you, you can't love God that you can't see. So we've got to be careful about saying, we love Jesus, we love the church, but we don't love God. Christians or other people, you can't get there. You can't get there. Someone truly said you can be committed to the church, but not be committed to Christ. You know, if I'm merely religious, I might say, yeah, going to church. I'm all about that. And not know Christ. On the other hand, you can't be committed to Christ and not be committed to the church. If you're committed to Christ because Jesus loves the church, we must love the church also. Finances, our hearts are tied up, guys, with the, our money, aren't they? If you want to know what you value, look at your checkbook. Look at your credit card statement. This is not hard to figure out. If you love the church, your credit card or your 
ledger should show it. We should be giving to the church because Jesus loves the church financially. If you don't give financially, I just say again, it's uh, baby love. It's not real love yet. You should be invested financially. One of the biggest for me too, and this is, a, this is aside from just the church, but if we love what Jesus loves, the local church and the church universal, we'll pray for the church. I've said this repeatedly. I've said it to some people in this room. When a sin issue comes up in an individual's life or a marriage is on the rocks, where there's something that can affect relationships, I warn people that the enemy is always after the church. The enemy is always after the church. It's one of the reasons why I want to guard my relationships and I want to guard my friendships. Because the enemy tears down Jesus' church, the church Jesus loves, and he does, through, does so through broken relationships and bitterness and unforgiveness. We've got to be so careful. The enemy is always after the church. Now, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the church takes some pretty good hits along the way. We need to pray for the church. I would, I would beg again that you pray for the leaders of this church, myself included, because I don't want to fall. You know, I know if an elder falls morally or in any other way, the church takes a hit. I don't want to fall. I don't want the enemy to be able to use me or our elders or our deacons to bring about division and dissension in the body of Christ. Pray for the church. Pray for each other. You know, Jesus prays for us. Right? First John talks about we have an advocate if we sin. We have an advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous. What does that mean? That means Jesus is today before the Father praying for us. Hebrews 7 verse 25 says the same thing. Jesus is our great high priest. He stands before God now in heaven itself to make intercession for us. If Jesus prays for the church, we should be praying for the church also. I'm highlighting the local church more because that's where we live. But you know, we need to be aware that the church is more than just our local expression of it, lion and lamb, or any place else. The church is all Christians across this globe since the resurrection on. We need to pray for, we need to think about, we need to realize that we're connected to every other Christian on this planet. They're part of us and we're part of them. As a church, we try and be thoughtful by especially remembering the persecuted church. Christians in many parts of the world don't have it near as easy as we do. And so through Voice of the Martyrs, we pray and we give because that's an entity that's part of the church that's helping feed on the ground persecuted Christians throughout the earth. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hebrews also says that if one member of the body suffers, they all suffer. And so we need to be cognizant, aware of, and praying for other elements in the body of Christ. Like one sibling to another, we also need to defend the church to those outside it, and also to be willing to speak loving reproof to those inside it. To defend the church to those outside, to speak loving reproof to those inside when I say defend the church to those outside, uh, don't misunderstand me. If someone says, I've known a lot of Christian hypocrites, I just grant that. Yeah, so do I. 
or if they say the church is out of line in one way or another, that we really are, then I just grant that. I don't, I don't try and defend what shouldn't be defended. I just grant that. But I want to grant that as one within the church. I don't want to do so by breaking ranks and joining the ones throwing rocks at Jesus' church. I'm willing to acknowledge that, but say, but the church is still the place that Jesus shows up. The church is still the entity Jesus loves. In spite of what we're like. I mean, that's salvation anyway, right? Jesus didn't die for us because we were great. He died for us because we were sinners. We weren't great. So, if others attack the church, don't join them. It's easy to, especially depending on the company you're with. You know, Peter by the fire. No, I don't know him. Because I'm in a group that says, I don't know him. You know, be willing to take some hits for Christ and Christ's name and for Christ's church. Defend the church appropriately to those outside. Don't throw rocks with them. And also, be willing to reprove lovingly to those inside the church. This is another thing that's very difficult for people in our culture to do. You know, we as Christians, we lie through our silence all the time. Because we don't do what the Scripture calls us to. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, admonish. You know, one of the definitions for admonish I love It's a friendly warning. It's a friendly warning. See, I like you. I care about you. So I say, hey, what about, you know, I heard something or I saw something. What about that? Or, hey, you know, I think you're really out of line on that, what you said or what you did. We should be willing to speak loving reproof to each other because Jesus loves us and we should love each other. And we all need each other's help in that sense. So we're not throwing rocks with the naysayers from the outside. We're defending the church. But within the church, we're speaking loving truth and correction to each other. And you know, if we're not sure, if we hear something about another person and we're not sure that's true, you know, we can always humbly say, hey, I heard something. Is that true? We can raise an issue with someone humbly. We don't have to be a a thumper. We don't have to come down hard on someone. We can ask. The question, but are we speaking loving reproof to others? Uh, Vance Havner said this about marriage. A wife who's 85% faithful to her husband is not faithful at all. There is no such thing as part-time loyalty to Jesus Christ. Are we faithful to Christ who loves us, loves the church, or not? Because we're His bride, right? The church is Christ's bride. And this is supposed to bring about a real fealty, a real faithfulness on one hand, but also a real emotionally compelling love. If you're married, or if you're not, something to think about for the future, you know there are times in marriage in which the emotions are not great. But you continue on out of duty, out of responsibility, out of a commitment and a covenant kind of faithfulness. And that's a good thing. Duty and faithfulness. Not because I feel like it in the moment, but because I'm committed. That's a good thing. Duty, when nothing else keeps us going, duty is a good thing. But, I'll tell you this. If your spouse knows you're only in the relationship out of mere duty, they're not going to be feeling the love. See, mere duty is good. It's a good place to start. Or it's a good place to hang in there when you need to. 
But only duty, mere duty is not enough. You need from your spouse this heartfelt affection and devotion, some passion. Well, that's no different than us with Christ. In our relationship with Christ and the church, sometimes we're hanging in with the church and with the Lord, it's just duty. It's because I know I should. I'm not feeling the love, but I know I should. And I'd say in those moments, that's okay. Duty's a good thing then, to hang in there. We don't want mere duty though. When we realize how much Jesus loved us, think back of the crucifixion and what we cost Him, and the more we get to know Him, Lord willing, because we're in the Scriptures and we're turning over in our mind all those things that are true of God and of Christ, then that should elicit from us emotionally compelling love and affection for Christ that He has for us. He's passionate about us. And we should be passionate about Christ. And we should be passionate about the church as well. It shouldn't be just duty. Duty's good. Responsibility's good. But at the end of the day, it's not enough. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, He knows what's coming, right? Palm Sunday's a great day, isn't it? If there's one day in history that I could go back to, for me, it's always been Palm Sunday. Because I would be there with the crowds seeing Jesus right in Jerusalem. That's the high point for me. You know, and I've read the Gospels. I know what happens afterwards. But Palm Sunday, it would be great. So He rides in on that little donkey and the, the stuff's down on the ground. The palm branches are waving. Hosanna. You're it. You're the Messiah. You're the one we've waited for. Now he knows those cries are going to change within the week. The same crowds in the same places are going to say crucify him, right? So why does he bother riding in on Palm Sunday? Why does he face that week that's coming and everything that's going to be part of it? Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, it's because he loved the church. And he gave himself for her. Palm Sunday's a great day, but you know it downhill from there. Why, why did he do that? He knows what's coming because he loved the church. He went through all that because he loved us. You know, it's March Madness, and seriously, not to put a, a damper on anybody's fun with the basketball games, take, take some of the enthusiasm you've got for KU and take that and become a cheerleader for the church. Wow, great, thank you. <laughs> become a cheerleader for the church, for that entity, that team, if you will, Jesus loves, and by the way, which will win in the end. You know, we win. The church doesn't look great at times, for sure. But we win in the end. And we should be about loving what Jesus loves pray for the church love the church plug in don't give lip service to this we should love what jesus loves and guys that's an easy call that is the church father i'm just struck by all the ways that i fail that i sin lord messages like this about obedience and being passionate sometimes about people 
that we're not passionate about. Lord, it is a, it's tough. But Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you loved us when there was nothing lovable about us. And that you laid your life down in the most agonizing of deaths possible. When your father turned his back on you, when your loving eternal fellowship was severed, you did that for us because you love us, because you love your church. And Lord Jesus, I pray we would repent in any of the ways we need to of thoughts, of emotions, of affections that would come between us and the love we should have for the church, between us and the obedience, the fealty we should have to the church, the bride of Christ that you love. Would you help us, Lord, to be serious and to love what you love, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.